0: Good afternoon everyone uh, and welcome to this session at the World Transformed on the third day, uh, Cities in Common, Urban Resistance to Neoliberalism. Uh, my name is Camille Barbagello, I'm an organiser with the Women's Strike Assembly and I'm going to be your host for this afternoon. Uh, across our cities, for many people, it's a constant struggle to get by. Inequality is rife, housing is unaffordable, and development under the guise of regeneration is tearing communities apart. Yet, we rarely discuss the city in political terms. So what could we discover through looking into the urban political struggles? Our panel this afternoon uh, has brought together a range of thinkers uh, who are going to explore how exciting, dynamic, urban uh, projects, both nationally and internationally, are demonstrating a real alternative to neoliberalism. Speaking on the panel uh, this afternoon is Ben Beach, who's an architect and also a member of Plan C. We have Raquel Rolnick, an architect and professor of urban planning at the University of São Paulo, and a, fo- a former UN Special Rapporteur on the uh, human right to adequate housing. Uh, Marlene Barrett uh, from Haringey Start, which is a community development project which aims for 100% social housing. And also James Murray, uh, the deputy mayor of London for housing. Please make them welcome. Before we kick off with the panel, just a quick little chairing note, uh, World Transform is a pluralist uh, space, which is just a fancy way of saying that lots of people have lots of opinions and we all come from different walks of life, uh, so we're really aiming to have a, a great discussion uh, after the panel, but obviously, as would be expected from a space like this, no bigotry uh, will be tolerated and will be actively challenged uh, on the spot. Uh, Also, we recommend that discussions and questions kind of be kept to a a comradely time length, something around the uh, version of about one or two minutes. And questions are also a good way of re-engaging with the panel as well. All right, I uh, might hand over to Ben Beach.
1: Hi. Um, So, I think City is a very interesting site for us to consider, um, as it's a space that all of us inhabit. And it transcends the workplace where labour struggles have traditionally been cited. But also it increasingly is becoming one of the most central nodes of of neoliberalism. It's it's a crucial site for circulating capital. And I've argued um, previously that when we talk about the housing crisis, perhaps there is no housing crisis. And, And the reason I've argued that is because I think we can look at it and we can see that actually there's not a crisis in terms of the amount of homes, there's been a deliberate process which has been designed through policy to financialize housing, and and with it, urban space, as a a means of valorizing capital. And if we take that sort of premise, actually, like, we we often think of things like the city in terms of financialization, in terms of of this economic imperative, but what I'd quite like to do with my little presentation is look at the political imperative for the Thatcherite forces and, and neoliberalism to redevelop and re-engineer the city. And so in the same way we can see that the housing crisis is a consequence of financialization, and that's a design project. What happens if we look at the way that we now pursue regeneration in urban centers as a political project? And what I've found, and this is a bit shameless plug for my current research, but if we look at the role of mass rioting in British cities, we can see that in response to mass riots, there's a process, of very intensive regeneration of urban space. And it's very interesting because the riot, unlike the protests, is the moment the state completely loses control of an area of territory, and it's a real problem for them. You know, and we, we saw in 2011 that across five days, the state had essentially lost control of major urban centres, and the consequences of that was billions of pounds worth of economic damage. And if we look, it's quite fitting that we're in Liverpool because actually if we look at the origins of a lot of regeneration schemes and sort of the policy architecture of it and, and the imperatives, actually we can trace a lot of it back to the 1981 riots in Toxteth. What happened is that prior to the 1981 riots, the, the Conservative Party didn't have any urban policy, really. They had their housing policy, and the housing policy, if you read through their internal minutes, was expressly designed to break up working-class communities. They saw that social housing was embedding Labour voters, and they wanted to displace that. And rights buy was just as much about cross-subsidising austerity from the housing yields, but breaking down this, like, red base, where, like, the left was concentrated. But aside from that, they didn't really have too much interest in it. But there were a few people, such as Michael Heseltine, that really did. And Michael Heseltine's property developer then became the environment minister, and he had a very obvious view on it, which is we needed more property development. And when he looked at sites like Liverpool Docks or London Docklands, um, he wrote to Thatcher in an email and said, in purely political terms, it is essential we do something positive about the inner cities. The dangers and the opportunities there are both great. And what he wanted to do was pursue a model of of urban development corporations that have have given us things like Canary Wharf, but he's kind of a fringe figure. He's a bit of a crank, essentially, in, in, in the Thatcher government. They don't really care. What changes is the Toxteth riots, which happened very soon after the Brixton riots, and also 34 other major riots in British urban centres. And suddenly the government realises it has to do something to arrest the decline of inner cities. You can look at it and you can say, well, why are these people rioting? Is that the consequence of social social malaise, economic malaise, which is all a direct result of the government policy. Or they can take the moralistic view, and the conservatives, they do, they say actually this decline, this physical decline, is also causing moral decline. So what we need to do is change the environment. And this begins, and Michael Heston is widely credited, as being the first person to take a strategic view of like regeneration. So they're not just like doing up a few streets or planting a few trees, they're trying to totally re-engineer the way that we deal with sort of urban space. And that's why things like the, the Tate-Liverpool, um, for example, was a consequence of the Tox-Death riots. But it was also linked to the fact that they wanted to pursue a cultural model of redeveloping cities. They didn't want to give people jobs. In fact, they had some, um, I've got some quotes from it, but like really horrific views on the state of unemployment in Liverpool. And they, they came to the conclusion it was the people's own fault. They wanted to use culture as a panthea to, to try and ameliorate it until they could depopulate the city. And there was a serious conversation about depopulation. And instead the response is they, they bring in the financial sector and, and Heseltine takes directors and major banks and puts them on a the coach and he drives them around Liverpool and he says all of your assets are in cities. If Liverpool can burn so can other cities and your investments. And he doesn't ask them for money, he asks them for policy and he brings in directors to create a unit within the Department of Environment of financial directors who design the mechanisms for the financialization of cities. And this process is sort of accelerated and extended in 1985, where we had the Broadwater farm riot. And again, this is really sort of starting to approach like crisis levels for the Conservatives. This is the law and order party. 1981, major mass riots. 1983, major mass riots. 1985, you've had the the first death of a policeman in over 100 years in the state of disorder. They really aggressively go in and try and regenerate the area. And one of the more radical proposals is to take Hesseltine's vehicle of the Urban Development Corporation, and, and one of the selling points that Hasseltan uses for this is the fact that it's so undemocratic, that it's writing out local labor councils. And in fact, when he goes, to, he goes to Thatcher, who isn't convinced about the Doctrine's project, he says, Well, I'm reliably informed that the people down there are all communists. He, he writes in his autobiography, and he says, In his own words, he says, The rocket took off, I'd lit the blue torch paper, I had won. He's like really celebrated about it, but it's Thatcher's fear of communism and it's, the, the drove, this incredibly undemocratic vehicle. And after 1985, the same vehicle of the Urban Development Corporation was touted for taking over all services in Haringey, aggressively like demolishing the housing estates and, and putting everything into the hands of the private sector and basically removing the state in totality from, from, from the borough of Tottenham. And this doesn't go through because... Um, it's seen even by the Thatcherites as too radical, too far. It was proposed by Oliver Letwin and Hartley Booth, who also wrote, um, who lobbied against spending extra money on urban programs. He said, don't give the money to the blacks. They will set up in the disco and drug trade and Rastafarian arts and craft shops. They, they looked at it, and through highly racialized language and, and terms just refused any urban assistance and focused instead on this model of regeneration. So if this 1985 project doesn't happen, but what it does do is it comes back to life in 2011, in the aftermath of the London riots, and the Haringey Development Vehicle is quite literally exactly the same set of policies. Now the Haringey Development Vehicle is dead, but its genesis shows a lot about how these riots are pushing forward this aggressive program of regeneration which aims to like, neutralize and disperse like, populations hostile to the state and replace them with a high-earning, home-owning, ideal conservative social subject. And we can see that this like, political recomposition of cities has been highly effective. Like Districts that voted Labour consistently have voted Conservative after these. these things. The population has been totally changed. In, in Haringey, they said they wanted 80% of residents to be from the top 5% of earners in London. That, that would mean that 80% of Haringey's existing residents would necessarily have to be displaced. And so, when we think of common cities, I, I think what it demonstrates is if the right wing are really making the effort to control and dominate our public space, um, and I think some of our other speakers have talked about that as well, um, it, it shows you the political importance they are placing on the composition of cities. And I think we should do the same. And so, what I'm hoping some of the questions might sort of come is, is, is how are we going to do that? How do we start making the transition from here and now into taking direct political control of our districts? How will we build? Um, Measures to combat some of the extreme social stresses being placed on people. In Scotland, there's rent pressure zones, for example. Could we declare boroughs to be a low-rent zone? And that's enforced through a process of renters' unions and rent strikes to keep that low. Can we start mobilising the resources' momentum to open food banks or rights and advice centres in cities? Can we pursue models of collaborative ownership or cooperative ownership of businesses and, and housing? I think if we can start to really sit, consider the, the city as this site of like, intense political activity, then it will provide sort of a wealth of solutions that we can begin to implement now with the resources that we have available today in the hope of moving away from neoliberalism and towards a more socialist future. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ben. We're gonna turn now to Raquel, who's gonna provide us with a bit of an overview around some of the impacts of the present neoliberal governance, followed up by some kind of propositions of escaping this status quo.
2: First of all, I'd like to thank you very, very much for the opportunity of being here and listening, being part of a movement for change and being part of a hope, which is very different from uh, the moment when I visit Um, here as uh, United Nations special rapporteur on the right to adequate housing in the peak of the financial crisis and um, and, uh, where the consensus on housing policies and urban policies was on the table. And I think the most important thing is that There is no more consensus on that. And clearly, the housing austerity reform and the housing policy that was pushed forward by conservatives around the globe has failed in uh, the, the promise of providing adequate housing for all. And I'm starting by saying and affirming again that Housing is a human right. And why I'm talking about housing, the panel is on cities because yes, housing has been a fundamental part of city building. Housing is a fundamental part of community building. And the whole strategy that we have seen, uh, urban policies has a lot to do with housing policies. And what we have seen is that a new colonial empire has seized cities over the planet, over the globe, in the last 20, 30 years. And the name of this colonial empire is finance. Finance, this very deterioralized, abstract, and speculative by nature, has taken control over the production of space, in order to provide to a wall of money, of surplus capital, which is floating around the globe, out of uh, shake oils, our pension funds, our small savings, sovereign funds of the country, seeking where to arrive in order, basically, to extract value and extract rent and income. And in this way, building space, the build space, has become one fundamental element of this chain of capital speculation, which seeks where can be invested in order solely only to make more money, to be bigger to seek where to invest, to make more money, to be bigger, and I can go on and on and on, because there is no connection between what is being built and what is being done and the needs and necessities of the people, including the fact, and this is absolutely clear with with, uh, the burst of the bubble and the financial crisis, including when we have thousands and millions over the globe of empty houses and empty office space, which is still very valuable as an asset because it's registered on the books. So even taking out from our sitting, dispossessing ourselves, Destroying our communities in order to be on the books. Not even used by nobody. And when we saw what happened after the crisis, which is the fact that the response to the crisis was more of the same, then we have to start to think, what can we do now? And of course, the response will never be unlock land value. And unlock land value has been the mantra of the last 20 years, which basically means how come a very well located location can be used by these low-income users and low-income activities. So get rid of it in order to open the frontier for the real estate financial complex, which is the one who is leading our urban policies through including many new um, innovative vehicles of public-private partnerships, like, for instance, real estate investment trusts. Why I'm saying that? Because there is no hope for the cities if we don't break the umbilical cord that links finance, private equity, hedge funds, speculative capital with build space. Which clearly means to do exactly the opposite that has been done in the last years. By, for example, instead of tax exemptions, To real estate investment trusts, like Golden Visa and other instruments to attract capital, to attract finance, to open our territories to capital and finance, to tax on the real estate investment funds very, very heavily, to uh, levy on non-used properties, empty properties, second, third homes who are there only to make profit and not for the use, can be very, very heavily taxed, and this is very important. But the most important thing, and this I think we can do right now, and hopefully um, when we get to the national uh, government, it will be possible to reform the taxation and to reform the fiscal policies, which is not something which is in the hands of uh, city councilors right now, but right now we can support, provide and nurture all the ways communities make use of space in a process of commoning. And I'm talking of public spaces, but I'm talking also about housing, Cooperative housing, community land trusts, and all the mechanisms and instruments that we can use in order to reserve land to the people to live, to create landscapes for life and not landscapes for rent, for income. And those creations of landscapes for life are indeed very clear barriers to the expansion of the real estate financial complex, and we can do it right now. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I'm going to pass over to Marlene now, who's going to discuss the Harringay Start, uh, which is as a project. Uh, Talk to us a bit about its origins uh, and uh, also question whether or not it could serve potentially as a wider model uh, for future development. Thank you.
3: It doesn't look like I'm going to get any photos for you. So you'll... Oh, oh, I am. I am. Fantastic. (laughs) Okay, so uh, I'm from START, which is the St Anne's Redevelopment Trust. Um, We're a community land trust, um, which means that The assets are locked in for the benefit of local people and we're run by the local community. Set up three years ago, um, and it was because the local NHS trust um, had just got planning permission to sell off two thirds of the land at this site, St Anne's Hospital, um, to build 470 homes with 14% affordable, um, based on the 80% of market rate. There was really big opposition to this sale, um, initially because of the reduction in health facilities, but also just the concerns about housing. All the things we talked about: local people being priced out, um, insecure and substandard housing. We're in a borough. Um, you know, this, is, this is Haringey that Ben was talking about. Ten thousand people are on the waiting list for council homes, and those are just the ones that are allowed to be on the list. Um, and you know the, the system that we know of uh, the people who are. Getting the housing benefit is actually that money's going to the private landlords, like uh, the, I think he's still the UKIP housing spokesperson who owns 200 homes in the area, takes home £800,000, and one of those houses is next door to me. I know he doesn't do a great job of looking after it. Um, There's also a really strong sense of community ownership about this site. People know about the trees and the historic buildings and had a really strong feeling that this is public land, it should stay public. And I think, again, it's just about that thing, wanting to have a real say, what happens in your neighbourhood. We're the people who know what works there. One of our inspirations was from reading Colin Ward talking to architects who's saying, who needs architects? The people can do it. (laughs) We did employ some architects, but uh, we made sure that we got our brief in there first. But it was really obvious there was such a strong public appetite for something different, and that wasn't just from the activists who know all about poor doors or, you know, estates being sold off, but it was just the people who, on the street, we were doing street stalls every week, we've handed out about 30,000 of our leaflets, um, we've had we get new people coming to our meetings every week um, you know, we've just had a massive response to our consultation and our surveys and and again, it, it's people who live locally who are affected by the regeneration and affected by, you know, the Spurs development that's happening um, with Tottenham Hotspur and um, just concerned about their own housing and yeah that's people who are earning money and who have, a, have an income but don't want to be in substandard insecure housing with that benefit going to a private landlord. It's an area where there is lots of community organizing but and lots of opposition to things that are going on like the successful campaign against the HGV but I think the sense of excitement with this was about that we're campaigning for something rather than just against something, and the potential actually to, rather than just be there at the planning meeting saying, we don't want this, but to actually try and be working in partnership. So from our first public meeting, we set out to try and be as representative as possible of the local community. We've got 400 members. Um, About two-thirds of them live within a mile of this site. Um, And then if we get the next picture... um, We did um, our first survey, got 350 responses. We like to say that because the um, council's housing survey for the whole borough only got 300. Um, (laughs) We've held nine consultations and had over 300 people coming to those. Our most recent um, survey about our allocations policy had 600 responses. And, yeah, we we, um, have a fairly diverse membership, but we definitely don't have enough representation from the... um, African diaspora community in Tottenham, especially in the sort of most active involvement in our membership, but we're working with a local organisation called the Abele Initiative who sort of look at supporting social leadership in um, African communities and intergenerational work. Um, And they did a really successful film night on housing with us, and that's the start of a partnership that we'll carry on, I think. So all our consultation came up with four really clear priorities for people. Housing, health green space and environment and the community having a say. Um, So this is the point where we developed a brief and did get the architects in. We've crowdfunded 25,000 to pay them to develop a master plan. So this is just one of the images from the master plan of um, what we wanted to try and put on the site. In terms of housing, so genuinely affordable, we define that as being a third of the local gross household income. Um, And we want that to stay for future generations, so as far as possible, trying to avoid right-to-buy or shared ownership. um, And really making sure it is homes for people, so as you said, not having buy-to-let and not having buy-to-leave is really important to us. In terms of the other priorities, the health and the green space in the community, I think it's just recognising really that good quality housing, having a sense of control over your life, access to green space not being isolated, those are all things that are really crucial for physical and mental health. We're next door to the mental health hospital, so the green on the side there before it goes into the gray area of the healthcare campus is um, our our vision of a porous border with community gardens. We've got some ideas for specialist and supported housing on the site so that there would be um, the the potential to sort of have some integration with with the hospital and the idea of a lifetime neighbourhood, so the different types of housing on the site, including communal sort of student-type living and going into more sheltered as well. We um, took some inspiration from Europe and beyond, so here's some ideas around courtyard living, shared streets and gardens. Um, we did an event with the Royal College of Art Architecture School, so we had people there from you know, places that have done this well and have done this with um, communities um, and done it in terms of co- cooperative housing so our, our design that we came up with um, this is the fun picture is um, higher density than the planning permission was received before nearly 800 homes um, but with a, with a good mix and with plenty of green space still and community facilities and workspace and um, the idea of sort of developing a bit of a wildlife corridor through the site. So that all looks great, but, well, how, how's that going to happen? Um, we did do some financial appraisals, and we could look at being able this, this being viable, with 65% of the housing being affordable. Um, but obviously, as a community organisation on our own, we didn't have any credibility to go and just bid for it in a commercial tender process. And there were lessons to learn from other projects, other London CL community land trusts where, the, the, well, there's a question about which side of the table is it best to sit on in trying to kind of influence the process, um, you know, because if you're, it, it, there, there was a, a development where community groups were sort of set up and faked by some of the developers. So We didn't want to get into that position. We had some indication from the NHS trust that they would be prepared to sell off market and the London Borough of Haringey, when we met them, said they would support us, said they wouldn't want to get involved in themselves, they weren't any good at doing housing, they told us. Um, but <laughs> And they were a bit busy with the Haringate Development Vehicle, probably. Um, but they said they would put in good word to James for us. Um, so we also applied to the Innovation Fund and um, started talking seriously to the GLA about the possibilities here um, I think it was actually us that put them in in touch with the NHS Trust and then the resulting thing was that the GLA in March bought the land with their land fund, I think James will tell us more about that, Um, but with with the commitment to work with START and the really good thing about that being the commitment to have at least 50% affordable and the GLA's definition of affordable rent, including the London affordable rent, which again is similar to ours about being based on what you can actually afford in the, in the, the median income in the area. So we've now got a memorandum of understanding and a steering group taking this forward and it, it feels really unprecedented and really exciting. Um, we really appreciate that GLA's trying to do something really different here um, and it's already much better than it would have been if it had just gone through as the, um, the uh, trust wanted and it means that the trust's already got it, it's getting its money and starting to do its building the much-needed healthcare facilities as well. I think it's really got replicable potential and sort of the possibility to be a flagship in terms of the quality of the housing, the environmental standards, creating a unique neighbourhood and the way that the community is involved. There might be some different perspectives on what level of community involvement is needed. And, you know, there's definitely different organisational cultures from our organisation and the GLA and the the local authority. Um, But part of it being an unprecedented... Way of working is actually trying to have that honest conversation and trying to work those things out Um, so there's still lots to do it's it's not going to end up looking like this but we do hope it will have as much community buy-in as this design as it evolves and i think it's um, i suppose that even if you're not setting out to kind of dismantle um, local communities in the way that ben was describing actually the odds are stacked against us at the moment as local authorities or as communities because of this neoliberal system that's favouring the developers over ordinary people. So this is trying to get away from that standard model where developers uh, build private housing, that subsidises the affordable housing, but not very much of it. It means that the affordable housing is kind of skewed towards the shared ownership end because that's the most cheap for them to build um, or the, 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 they can get the most money from it and shared ownership isn't affordable in, in South Tottenham. It also means that you do get stored developments because you get opposition from local people. Uh, developers don't really want to put loads of market, houses onto the market at once because they want to create uh, a competitive market so it's, it, none of those things make it be a good way of doing things. Um, what we're trying to look at are different kinds of investment, we've talked to pension funds. Um, who can uh, get a slow interest return over 30, 40 years. They don't need the capital back. We're looking at philanthropy. We're looking at getting donations because that's, in a way, a way to give the public sector confidence that this is a model that can work. Um, And we're also really interested in where there are going to be market rate sales, making sure that a lot of them go to co-housing or co-ops so that there's still a community ethos there. So, yeah, trying to shift from being a spanner in the works to working together.
0: Thank you. And our last speaker today is James, who's gonna be discussing some of the successes and also the failures of current policy initiatives, uh, and also what policies would Labor pursue nationally, uh, and what would the mayor's office like to do in moving things forward?
4: Thank you very much for inviting me along uh, to speak, Um, and it's great to follow the speakers we just heard from. Uh, Marlene and I working together on the project in Haringey, which I'll come to in a little bit. Um, But actually, firstly, I want to take a a slight step back uh, and agree with uh, something we heard earlier on about the international perspective on cities and the common uh, struggle uh, that people living in cities, people trying to make cities better, are facing across the world. And I think it comes down to a pretty simple starting point, which is that, um, as we heard, the current model of building housing is not building the housing we need. And it sounds like quite an obvious point, but it's actually really important to say that up front, because it's not really a question just of tweaking or or shifting slightly the current model. We do need a completely different model of building housing if we're actually going to build the housing that we need. I'll give you one statistic from London. I'll try not to make this too London- Uh, Centric, but one statistic from London which I think really brings home for me the fact that the current model of housing delivery is not building the housing we need, which is that 80% of the new homes built in London for sale are affordable to just 8% of Londoners who need them. So the vast majority of housing which is being produced is being produced as property rather than as homes for people who need them. And that really, in a nutshell, is where the problem comes from. And in in the rest of what I say, I'll say uh, what I think some of the solutions to that uh, might be. Um, I think it's worth dwelling on the fact slightly, particularly as we have an international panel here, uh, about the fact that this is a challenge faced by cities right across the world. And it's really struck me when I'm talking uh, with my counterparts uh, in other cities around the world uh, how many things in common we have and how many of the same pressures and challenges um, overlap. Um, We had the mayor of Barcelona uh, visiting uh, with us in City Hall recently, Arda Colau, uh, who was great. Really good conversation we had with her. Um, And she and Sadiq uh, worked together on a a declaration which was called Cities for Adequate Housing, which was published on July the 16th. Uh, Have a look at that maybe after this meeting if you're interested in some of the detail. And uh, she and Sadiq wrote an article in The Guardian, which was in July as well, and I think what, what struck me about writing that article, um, or helping to write the article, um, was how many... <laughs> gave away some trade secrets there, didn't I? Um, about uh, the way the article was written, um, is that some, a lot of the language and a lot of the challenges and solutions were just the same. You know, Sometimes we had to make sure we were using the same terms in translation, but actually it was the same kind of thing, saying, you know, uh, national governments are basically happy to abandon cities to their fate in both countries. The national governments are not stepping up or doing the right thing. And first and foremost, the purpose of housing is to provide homes to citizens um, rather than speculative assets. And it just struck me how easy it was to write that joint piece uh, with the mayor of Barcelona and how uh, that's a common uh, feeling held across cities right around the world. Um, Let me tell you just very briefly a few things we're doing in London, which um, I would introduce with the clear context um, that we know we don't have the powers and the resources that we need now to fix the housing crisis in London Um, but um, we need to do everything we can with those powers and resources we have not only to make a difference in the next few years to any people uh, who we can improve uh, the lives of um, but also to show that a different way um, is possible Um, to show that by doing things in a different way uh, we can then make more convincingly the case uh, for a bigger step change and a bigger change from national government, so I'll just run you through through a few of the things uh, that we're doing which can maybe uh, lead into some conversations uh, later on in this session. Um, Firstly, uh, when it comes to private development, so we inherited the situation where as I said, private development is not building homes that meet Londoners' uh, needs, Um, and as soon as we got into City Hall we checked what was coming through the pipeline in terms of planning permissions Um, and we saw that out of the homes which had been given permission uh, when we came into office, the level of affordable housing um, in those planning consents had dropped to just 13 13, 13% of housing uh, being affordable. And as Marlene alluded to earlier, a lot of that affordable housing was not really affordable. It's you know affordable, 80% of market rent being used as a definition of affordable, the dodgy definition uh, that we inherited um, along those lines. And actually, I mean, that's not just... Uh, wrong in that it's not building genuinely affordable housing it also really damages trust you know because when you talk to people about affordable housing and the term has been abused to that extent people don't believe uh, the term affordable has any meaning to it and so what we set out to do is two things and firstly to define genuinely affordable very carefully and to make sure we're really clear about what we mean by genuinely affordable and there are obviously slightly different things which are affordable to Londoners in different contexts, uh, but two key housing types we're supporting, one is social rent housing, homes at social rent levels, which is pretty straightforward because everyone knows what it means, but we know that it's genuinely affordable, we know that people trust that it's genuinely affordable, um, and we know that we're therefore going to be building some of the homes we need. Um, And secondly, alongside that, the other rented housing we're supporting, um, again, as Marlene referenced, is London living rent, which is homes where it's linked to income, to a third of average household income, rather than to the market rates. And that's starting to signal a different way of calculating rent to make sure it's genuinely affordable rather than being a percentage of market rent that keeps going up and up toward the 80% definition that we inherited. Uh, that definition of affordable uh, then applies in the context of the mayor having a 50% affordable housing target across the piece. So inheriting a pipeline of 13%, we want to go up to 50%. It's going to take time because it's quite a lot big tanker to turn around. But we're already seeing a lot of progress in that direction with the level of affordable housing and the applications the mayor has seen now up into the 30%, going above 30% into the high 30s, and we're starting to make progress of getting those numbers up. So it shows you that you can make a difference, um, even though we know that that alone will not build all the homes that we need. I think secondly, whether it's private development or councils building or housing associations or whoever is taking the lead on it, um, everyone thinking about building in London, and and I would say elsewhere as well, should ask themselves the question, what impact is this development going to have on the existing communities? And forgive me if that sounds an obvious point, but I think it's something which just hasn't been thought about enough. You know, I think too often people consider the development as if it's just landing in a bubble and it lands in the middle of a neighbourhood and its own self-contained environment which is marketed in its own certain way. Um, I think it 's incumbent on anyone leading a development to think how is this going to impact local people, uh, what kind of housing is going to be built that can help local people who need to rent or buy somewhere and can 't currently afford to do so and putting local people center stage is uh, I, I hope what we 're trying to do uh, with the St Anne's site um, in Harringay, um, as marlene said' i 'm I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying working with you <laughs> I think it's great I think As Marlene alluded to, it's interesting coming together from two different perspectives, from the community-led perspective, you know, and then me. I've been at the City Hall a couple of years now, but obviously coming there with all of the officers from City Hall and their way of doing things. And I think it's interesting, as we're trying to have this really honest conversation about how do we achieve as much of both of our objectives as possible. And we don't always get it right, I hold my hands up. Sometimes uh, it's really worth having that honest conversation and you tell me when I've got it wrong. <laughs> but it's a, good, it's a good relationship to have, and I think having that kind of honesty um, and that kind of you know, trust, basically, uh, is the way that we can uh, both get a lot of what we want uh, to get done um, achieved. And I think right across London, we're seeing different ways of communities taking more of a lead, in development. You know, I really hope that what we achieve um, at St. Anne's is a model which we can use um, elsewhere. But more widely than that, there are other ways that the mayor wants to see local people uh, with a really definitive say over what happens. Uh, for instance, he's now said that if there's going to be a state regeneration uh, which wants his funding uh, to go into it uh, on any significant projects, uh, there will need to be a ballot. And he wants to see evidence of that positive ballot to release his funding. So making sure there's a backstop there for people to have a say about estate regeneration. Um, And then my third and final point um, is going to be about a programme that we're running right now, which I'm quite proud of. Um, It's called Building Council Homes for Londoners. So if anyone can guess what the aim of the programme is. (laughs) Um, It's a programme which we've launched uh, in May of this year. Um, And it's one that we did on the back of having to fight hard uh, to get money off government for uh, money to be spent on social rented housing. Uh, When we came into office, there was no money at all for social rented housing. There's literally none for social rented housing. Uh, But we kept making the argument and we managed to get some money for it earlier this year. And I think what for me is so important about the Building Council Homes for Londoners program operating alongside the work we're doing to involve the community and to involve Londoners in the decisions is that it's making the case that councils have to have a leading role in building housing if we're ever gonna fix the housing crisis. And that kind of brings me full circle, I think, to the point uh, which I started on, in that the current model uh, will build properties, but it won't build the homes we need. And we have to have councils, we have to have city hall, we have to have all layers of government uh, working to build genuinely affordable and social rented homes. And I think without that being a key part of the mix, uh, we're not going to truly change the situation. So we're showing what we can do with our current powers and resources, 10,000 council homes is the target for this Building Council Homes for Londoners program. Uh, We're working well with councils across London and obviously those 10,000 homes will help uh, families and and people in need across the city. But more than that, um, I want it to make the case for bigger change. Um, I think if we can show what a difference we can make with the money and the resources we have now, uh, we can then make the bigger case uh, to government, make the bigger case uh, for the radical change that we need. Thank you.
0: Thank you to all of our speakers. Okay. Wow, the hands have gone up before I've even asked. We've got an energetic and engaged audience on our hands. Okay, so the framing of this discussion, we thought would be useful to kind of collectively discuss and ask questions and contributions around what would it mean to have common cities or cities in common? And what kind of process uh, do we need to start to kind of get there? Uh, techie support people, can I, we have a tiny bit of um, light into the audience just so we can see hands? Um, and is there anyone doing running around with microphones like we're on a daytime talk show? <laughs> awesome. Okay, this woman over here. Uh, yes, there's someone coming with you with a microphone. We might take contributions in collections of two or three. Right, I'm coming from
5: London too, from Lambeth. Um, And I'm finding it difficult to support what our council is doing. They're demolishing six council estates on their own land, all low-rise, against the wishes of the residents who are taking them to court, judicial review. They're getting GLA funding. There are no ballots. This has all gone through before Sadiq's policies come into effect. My daughter's living on one of them. They're going to be totally socially cleansed, and I'm finding it difficult to campaign for my Labour council, right? What interests me in what I've heard from Marlene is the community land trusts. Since their council owned land, what's to stop Lambeth Council doing what you're doing with St Anne's with these six estates? Because the, they, ha- they own the land already, but they're going to go into a pro- uh, deal with property developers, um, a bit like Harringay. but it's a wholly owned... Um, property company, Homes for Lambeth it's called, but they're going to use private property companies to do the development and there's going to be very little increase in social housing and it's going against the grain um, of local people. So what's the mechanism for community land trusts? How can we... I don't understand it enough.
0: Okay. Uh, I'll take
5: this uh, woman here. Um, Really, this is a follow-on because we had a labor city hall labor mayor we had a labor council in harringay and yet the labor mayor's office did absolutely nothing to help us when we were fighting the Deve- harringay development vehicle and i'm just i really appreciate everything i've heard and i'm really supportive but when push comes to shove the elected officials never help it was Purely people power and the fact that we were having local elections and we could change the councillors. Otherwise it would have gone through and we would have had a similar situation. So my question is, can we trust the people who we elected to support us despite the fine words?
0: Maybe also what kind of social movements do we need to keep our elected officials accountable? Uh, So can we take uh, this Thank you.
6: Um, So I used to work in Barnet, and um, you probably heard of the West Hendon estate that was um, demolished by Barnet Council. And it's all coming to light now how Capita may have done it illegally, but it's already been built. What I want to know is, all these estates have been demolished, not just in London, but elsewhere. I believe councils have compulsory purchase powers. If they're standing empty, why can't the council buy them up for a pound, like West Hen- like the Barrow developers did with West End, they bought their estate for three pounds. Why can't the council buy up all those properties for a pound or whatever amount of money they want to do and give it back to the residents that were kicked out? Because that happened to my aunt. My aunt was kicked out of Harrow. She was forced to move to Huddersfield against her will because her landlord kicked her out of her house. And Harrow council moved her up north. And there's thousands of people who have been forced to do that. Take back the houses that the developers have built I don't care if they're a million pounds, you can pay them 10 quid for it as far as I'm concerned and bring those people back.
0: I might just take one more. Um, as someone, well, let's go to the back, shall we? Sorry. It's a little bit like, I can't quite see. Uh, do people want to put their hands up again? Sorry,
1: yeah. No. Hi there. Um, yeah, I was just interested in how we can make this a, a wider public issue. For me, um, the issue of housing, sorry, is something about the politics of everyday life. And often our views as part of the Labour Party by the mainstream media are often made to seem like fringe opinions. Uh, for me, an issue like housing and making communities happier is a way to really like, outmanoeuvre the mainstream media on this issue. And ha- everyone cares about where they live. How can we make that a wider public issue to get, them, to get people on board with Labour's wider vision?
0: Okay, I might bring the panel in just to kind of respond to some of those things. I'll, uh, Ben, did you want to jump in?
1: Um, yeah, some really good points, I particularly like yours. I think um, we, re- we really should be looking at things like requisitioning empty homes and seizing land. Like, you said give them 10 pounds. I wouldn't give them 10 pence, frankly. It's like, if we're <laughs> gonna talk, and say there's a housing crisis, If we're serious about there being a crisis, every available measure should be brought to bear. Like, it's a scandal that there's thousands and thousands of people that are homeless. We're in one of the richest countries in the world. And actually taking those sort of steps is exactly what I think we need to be doing. And and that sort of feeds onto what someone was saying about Labour councils, because Labour councils really are actually some of the worst when it comes to um, regeneration and and the compulsory clearances of estates. It's a disgrace on the party. It really is. And some of the way that some people have been treated is appalling. And I think that that is something that needs to change at the first opportunity. And the people responsible for that need to be held to account. But I think also it's it's worth bringing it back to the impact of central government. So the, the, the right to buy sales were in part due to austerity, right? And as has been described by Negri and also David Cameron himself, austerity is a constant ongoing process that aims to give back like taxes to corporate profit margins, essentially. It's, it's, it's reversing of the state in the interest of corporate growth, and it doesn't stop. So Right to Buy was about selling off council houses to, to cross-subsidize tax cuts. Um, in, in this day and age, as the central government has cut the funds to local councils, councils are increasingly just reliant on Section 106 money for, from, from development. They get paid by developments. Each development means more cash for the council and the council doesn't have enough money. and It doesn't have enough money to provide key public services like, like care for the elderly. So every development is almost pushed through because it's propping up council budgets. And there's only so much family silver you can sell. And so if you sell off these estates, it's like well, we'll give them to you for a quid, and then the developer comes in, you get some new house, and it looks like there's progress, some sort of target is met in some obscure flip chart, and, and, and obviously things get worse for communities. So I think, on requisitioning homes and holding councils to account for this are two sides of the same coin because both those things depend on like urban social movements I think and how we build those movements um, I'll leave to other people to sort of explore
7: oh.
2: now I would, I would try to answer that from a Brazilian point of view which is what kind of response of Uh, the people to the housing needs. Occupy. And I'm saying that because indeed, there is a huge movement in Sao Paulo and other big cities in Brazil today that organized, organized community just enter into empty buildings to live and stay, and struggle to stay, and struggle to have some policy to rehabilitate and transform into social housing eventually. In this meantime, just stay. And I'm saying that because this has to do also, not only because I heard here, council needs to do that, or the state needs to do that, or the council needs to provide this and that. But then there is another question, and we are talking about social movements. If we take the situation of rent, because uh, the failure of the housing policies has pushed everybody, a lot of people, into wild rent in the private sector. Rental schemes which are not safe, uh, people that can be evicted uh, without, uh, with no fault notice, with six months uh, time, and things that are outrageous, because it it provokes a transience in communities and a permanent transience in communities. So I think it's very important for renters to organize, to stop eviction, to stop no-fault eviction, to organize in order to uh, avoid global corporate landlords to come into the building and raise the rent. And again, if we see, if we see the example of Spain, especially in Barcelona, and how much The people movement on housing has achieved to now, just to begin with, just trying to maintain people in the apartments where they live right now, being their social rent apartments or private rent apartments. So I think it's very important, not only to demand from the state, but to act to organize and to stay, and really to stay put, because every occupied space for our needs is a space that is taken out from this frontier of financial capital. So it, it does not have only an immediate result for the people who are living somewhere, but also it's very important at city scale, and even at global scale. And we have to understand that, and we have to act, because I think this is the only way we can change state. I am absolutely sure about seeing that in a global level, that states in general have been taken by capital. So to change that will require much more action from ourselves. Hear,
6: hear.
3: So just to start with the question about the community land trust. Um, so, I mean, anyone can set one up. But it's not a legal form. It's, um, you choose whether you want to be like a... You can be a company or you can be a community benefit society and then there's a set of uh, rules that you're... description that you're he- adhering to as a community land trust. And it's about um, having assets locked in and run for the local community. The point about ours is that ours is still very aspirational. We don't own that land. Um, you know, the, the NHS Trust did own it. They've sold it to the GLA. They're gonna sell it to developer. We're still talking about what happens to it ultimately. Um, but we don't legally own it, but we have a sense of community ownership over it. Um, and I think that maybe is something important about the other discussions about you know that, realizing that you have power is, you know, seen the amazing campaigns that's going on in West Hend- Hendon, going on in Lambeth. Um, there have been some awful things have happened but there's also been some amazing success stories as well where people have come together and created homes like in Leeds or in Brixton. Um, in Haringey there's a housing action group that supports people. Um, I guess what this partly makes me think of is just What is the underlying issue here is about land and not having ever had proper land reform in this country. Um, and That's the issue that we're still dealing with this tiny percentage of people who own most of Britain. And that affects our housing, but it also affects our farming and all of the other things that actually we need for basic basic living here. Um, There is some good stuff happening in Scotland around that, around the community right to buy um, and around land reform. And that's maybe something we should be looking to.
4: Thank you. Actually, just to pick up very directly from what Marlene said around the importance of land, um, I think, you know, in, in a lot of the conversations around what we need to change to build the sort of homes that we need, it can get very complicated. But if you had to distill it down to one fundamental problem, it comes down to land. And it comes down to the speculative nature of land being priced at the moment, particularly somewhere like London, where it's sold and resold and so on. Um, and it applies even to public land. You know, where public land uh, can be sold off to the highest bidder because the government department wants to get the biggest receipt for it. Um, in a lot of cases, it might not even be sold to a home builder. You know, if they want the highest receipt, they could, in theory, sell it to anyone. who might just land bank it, which would be to no one's interest. Um, but certainly, that pursuit of the highest land receipt at all costs um, undermines the case for affordable housing. Um, I mean, one thing that we've done we've been able to do in City Hall, is through our planning policy, effectively try and change the value of public land. Um, So what we've said is that any public land being built on, there's an assumption it should have at least 50% affordable housing. So that means that when a government department is selling a piece of public land in London, anyone trying to buy that land is under no illusions that we expect at least 50% of it to be social rent or rather genuinely affordable. Homes. And I think having that starting point shows that using our planning policy, we can start to push in a better direction with public land to try and keep the values of it down to an extent uh, by requiring that 50% affordable housing and being really upfront about that uh, right from the very beginning. I think, you know, I'd like to go a lot further on land, and if anyone wants to sit down with me for about a day and a half, I'll tell you my views on <laughs> land reform. But I think it is really fundamental to what we need to do. Um, on the, the other point, actually, that Marlene touched on around community land trusts um, and community-led housing. Um, we had, actually, a round table at City Hall just last week where we brought together um, some people involved in community-led housing projects, uh, small, smaller than the St Anne's one, generally much smaller scale, and we tried to bring them together with some of the councils, uh, the areas in which they're operating. Um, and what we did by bringing them together is try to develop some of that trust, I think, between the councils and people who want to run uh, projects. And I think trust... Is not something you can legislate for. <laughs> I think there are some things you can you can change which give you trust. So if we define affordable properly and we say we mean social rent, etc., hopefully that builds a bit of trust. Because when I say the word affordable, people don't roll their eyes. They know I've defined it more more carefully. Uh, but I think trust it actually comes down to it a lot when we're talking about what we're what we're trying to build. And before I was in my current role, I was a councillor um, in Islington. Uh, for ten years, uh, we had two local MPs there who you might have heard of now, <laughs> but uh, I spent a lot of time there, obviously building council housing and, and so on and you know I remember one estate in particular where we, we wanted to build some extra homes on the estate, um, and it was uh, because of the, the the way the plans were there was about one hundred and forty homes, and about i think hundred or around one hundred of them were going to be for social rent, so it was kind of a good good mix of housing. Um, but some of the local residents there were suspicious of us because we were a new council and they didn't know, they didn't, we hadn't built that trust. And I think it's a remind, it was a reminder to me that just because I thought I had some good ideas doesn't automatically get me trust. You know, I need to work quite hard to build that trust. Um, so we spent a day on a minibus. Uh, we went around, to, me and the, the, the Tenants Residents Association, we went around looking at loads of projects, me saying what I thought I liked, listening to their views and what they liked and didn't like. And actually, that started building a relationship of trust. So I think that trust between Um, officials or elected officials um, and and residents who are going to be involved in developing projects isn't something you can snap your fingers and have, it's something you need to work at um, and try and earn that trust. Um, And I'll just finally finally mention the point, I think the gentleman at the back spoke about uh, making housing into a wider public issue. Um, I think that's absolutely right, and I think, actually, the one thing we haven't spoken much about, although it has been spoken about a bit, but we haven't spoken that much about the private rented sector. Um, and although building housing is obviously essential, um, in London we've got 2.4 million people renting privately and they all live in existing homes and they're governed by the existing outdated, uh, inadequate uh, legislation around tenants' rights. Um, And so what we should be arguing for, whether it's us at City Hall or people uh, campaigning, um, is for an overhaul of the private rented sector. Um, I mean, the mayor has has set out his position over summer, which is to uh, basically scrap Section 21, so scrap no-fault evictions, um, and to have open-ended tenancies, so that tenants have the right to open-ended tenancies if that's what they want. Um, We tried to get people interested in reporting this, um, and a lot of the media in London just wasn't really interested in reporting on it, even though we felt it was really important. And so I think every opportunity that we collectively can use Uh, to campaign and to make the point uh, for overhauling the private rented sector to make it fit for purpose, uh, we should take full advantage of. Thank you.
0: I'm sure lots of people in the audience will already know this, but the recently launched London's Renters' Union uh, is certainly uh, taking some of those issues very seriously. And there's also been ACORN groups established in a lot of different cities across the country that is also uh, organising private renting tenants. And if you, like me, have been a long-term ge- member of Generation Rent, uh, I'd recommend that you uh, get along and get involved in those housing struggles. Okay. Okay. Um, person here with yeah no it's, uh, amazingly uh, most of them have
8: I just wanted to take it like away from housing just for a little bit and um, suggest that I think that one of the biz- biggest successes of neoliberalism in our cities is to um, give us all the impression that any solution that doesn't follow the logic of the market is a bit silly <laughs> and a bit hippie and a bit unworkable and totally unscalable. Um, and so I think we've got a real job with like counteracting that through community housing projects and, and, and other types of urban resistance. And I'd suggest that at the heart of that is the concept of citizenship and actually starting to break this idea of citizenship being defined by how you work and what you consume, and actually taking it back to its original conception of a contract between you and the city of rights and responsibilities. Um, And I wanted to know what the panel thought about what kind of infrastructure needs putting in place so that we can reimagine that kind of active citizenship.
0: Thank you. Um, We might come over this side of the room. uh, th- there's this woman here in with an orange jumper
8: Hi, yeah, uh, I was just wondering, um back on the back of that point, actually, as well, if we could talk about a little bit more about the privatization of public space, so I mean kind of. Um, you know, public areas that we often think are public, um, squares, spaces like that, that are increasingly actually privatised and it's often something that you don't really realise for a while and then after a while you're like, oh okay, so all these shops are designed for my consumption, not for my public good. Um, So I was wondering if the panel could comment a bit on that.
0: Thank you. And just this woman here, this here with the blue shirt. Thank
7: you. I wanted to challenge the narrative about um, what gives rise to uh, rioting um, or uprising, as what we had in Liverpool was an uprising and is not accepted as a riot. And that the problem is the community and the solution is the housing. In Liverpool 8, the problem was created by racism. This is a very racist city, it always has been, it still is. If you go into the city centre, you will rarely see a black person working there. Um, Before the uprising in 1981, the top end of that, there had been a a five-year project to mix the community, i.e. to get rid of the black community. And a lot of the houses were CPO'd and they were given to housing associations, and that community was in the process of being broken. And um, then, Uh, In 1981, the the flashpoint was the racism of a policeman towards a perfectly honest man on his way to work, and the community had had enough. What the, the housing response to to that was to remove all the big old houses that had housed extended families and non-conforming families and other, other groups of people occupying those houses. They, they replaced a straight street with, with streets going across with these big houses and they made it into a warren that was very difficult to navigate and they also made it into a, a, an estate of small houses which no longer accommodated big families. So families were forced to move out of that area. And the problem here was racism. And it wasn't the housing. Okay, I might come
0: back up onto the panel. Or we might actually just quickly take one more, because then I'll get the panel and we'll do one more round after that.
5: Thank you. Um, This may be a red herring, but um, I was wondering about whether there is a role for land tax in creating
0: more housing. Just what the panel's views are. Thank you. Okay. Okay.
1: I'll um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know if you can tell, but actually I'm incredibly hungover. So I'm sorry if what I said earlier didn't make that much sense. So I'll just clarify my sort of comments on the riots. Is I completely agree with everything you said. The housing was not the cause, um, but for the Conservatives, suggesting the environment was responsible for the riots meant that they didn't have to do any sort of analysis of their own policy or look at issues like racism, police violence Um, in severe inequality, which, of course, they're promoting. And you see exactly that same combination of factors come back around again in in 2011 in Tottenham, where, again, the proximate cause of the riots is police violence, um, but then you have a long-standing situation of dire inequality. Um, And and the same response is made. They come come out using this very dodgy research from an organisation called Space Syntax, and they suggest that every the incident of rioting was close to a large housing estate, so therefore the housing estate meant the riot. And of course, this is baloney, it's like central London, there's like a pigeon close to the centre of every rioting, but the pigeons didn't cause the riot. you know, it's, it's stupid, but what it does mean is it gives them a political context to then demolish those homes and then sell the land over, uh, which in the process um, fills this ideological function, which is this aversion to these centres of working class um, existence really. It's, it's, it's an antipathy towards working class life um, and also cross subsidizes austerity, which we sort of spoke about earlier. Um, it's worth mentioning that the report that generalizes um, the sort of strategy Heseltine pursues was called It Took a Riot, and that was written in response to the Toxeth riots. In 2011, at Tottenham, they wrote a second report called It Took Another Riot, where they proposed exactly the same. Policies and and someone mentioned about the privatization of public space. You can trace a lot of this back. So, one of the things that they did um, with Canary Wharf is they used compulsory purchase powers um, and these urban development corporations. They had rights to land assembly, so they could basically join up huge amounts of land and they give this parcel over to a sort of consortium of developers, financiers, whatever. This is really the beginning of the wholesale privatization of large areas of the city, and, um, and I'm, I'm in London. So, without wanting to make it too London-centric, if you walk around, you can see areas where the pavement changes colour, and that's private space. And actually, huge amounts of the city, like really, huge, all the streets are basically private space. And, and it's incredibly controlled, it's heavily surveilled, there's often security guards, and they remove elements that they consider undesirable, such as the homeless, like the political activity is prohibited. And it's, it's incredibly undemocratic, because it means that large parts of our urban environment are now just under the control of finance. And I wonder if we could try and sort of think about taking this back, maybe there's a role for sort of public-commons partnership, you know, have a public-private partnership, or so say, well, actually we want a partnership with the social movement and, and, and government that's going to produce social spaces in cities. We talk about social rent. Why don't we talk about anti-social rent? You know? and, like, and start to define these things in terms that we sort of want to see. And um, uh, There's one more point that someone else oh, uh, probably. oh, What infrastructure would require to restore this sort of thing the cities? I think in part that is this process of unionization we're seeing in, in the private rented sector. And the, the private rented sector is huge issue for many of us. Um, Raquel said we need to break the umbilical cord between finance and, and housing and I think the, the moment that financialization of housing meets the street really is when you pay rent and rent, rent is this process of financialization action especially with the role of buyer to let landlords and the Bank of England warns us says if there's any disruption in the buy-to-let mortgage market um, it would cause a financial crisis. Well, that's real leverage. If everyone stops paying their rent to buy to let landlords and they can't pay their mortgages and we can trigger a financial crisis, let's do it. You know, like, they're selling apples, we want oranges, so let's kick, kick the cart open. And, like, a mass rent strike really could actually exert leverage to change policy. And that brings it back to this question of infrastructure. And it, it is about building, I think, these social unions that are able to... to defend us and defend our common spaces to fight against rent increases and to end evictions you know we should be saying no one gets evicted in the housing crisis should be a moratorium on evictions and the way we get that is by working together to stop evictions from physically happening and uh, this is all the sort of stuff i think we need unionization for so plug for that
0: i might bring raquel in on some of these questions around the commons and urban space
2: yes You are absolutely right, we talked about housing, but we did talk about something which is fundamental, the right to the city. And the right to the city, it's not just the right to access the city in terms of having access to infrastructure, to housing, to equipment, to be able to circulate, to enjoy the city, it's more than that. It's the right to have a say in the decision-making process that defines the destiny of the city. And what, is, uh, what happened with neoliberalism is neoliberalism is not just an economic program and an ideological program, but it's also a political program by which very important chunks and parts of the city, were taken from the decision-making process, even from the state, even from the political realm, into private contracts, who are included, absolutely shielded from politics, which is a very bad thing, because in order to be efficient, in order to be sustainable in terms of the expectation of income over the years, all those projects that Ben were talking about, and this is everywhere, were taken from the public realm and were converted into private governance. So we have to talk about distributive governance not only distribution of wealth, not only distribution of access to means and resources, but also how we take back, or we take for, for the first time, the decision-making process of deciding what should be done in cities to our hands. So I think this should be a very important point in our agenda for the future.
0: Fantastic, I'm actually just gonna take some more questions from the floor, is that okay with the panelists? Yeah, okay, good, because there's such eager hands. Um, This woman here at the front. Sorry, I've been neglecting this side, I will come over to you soon.
9: Hi, I'm from Bristol, and I want to pick up this point about uh, citizen rights. We are seeing at the moment in Bristol a real struggle over access to public space by the most vulnerable group, that is the homeless. And we have had, we have had um, homeless driven off the streets by the police, um, with nowhere else to go because we don't have enough homeless centres in Bristol. But also we've seen a war on people living in vans and caravans, and there are more and more of those all the time and they're just being moved in. So obviously these are people who by nature of the fact they don't live in a house are excluded from citizen rights and voting. So I'd like to ask the panel if they have, you know, any thoughts about that. How how can we make sure that uh, the policing of public space doesn't disadvantage the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people in our society even more? Thank you.
0: All right. I promised to uh, have some equality with this side of the room and this gentleman uh, has had his hand up for a while. <laughs> it's OK. It wasn't actually you, but you can use my mic
10: Here. It's just that someone, someone said just now about land taxation. I was going to ask something about, uh, about betterment. This was something which was in the 1947 Planning Act, I think. And if, as a result of planning permission, someone's land goes up hugely, uh, then that should be taxed off them. Um, the idea at the moment—it's getting us a bit of cross-party attention. The idea at the moment is that that could drop the um, cost of building a house by something like 80%. It's, uh, the land value is a huge amount now in the in the cost of uh, cost of building a house. Comrades. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm from Norwich, and um, it's been really encouraging to hear what's happening in London, actually, on on affordable housing. Um, And you've gone, you know, for proper definition, and you've set 50%, and you're actually seeing some of that coming through in your 37% figures. Um, We're sort of just way behind the curve on that, and I think that's true of a lot of places in the country. and we've been fighting the viability assessment thing. And even now, last week, we saw something coming through for 4.5% affordable housing a redevelopment in the city, 200 houses, but only 4.5% affordable housing. What, one question is, um, does the National Planning Policy Framework and the changes this summer, does that help us fight that. My, my view actually is that it's going to have to go to the courts because the government made it so vague in what they put. I, I'm really interested in your views on that. And a, a linked question on the affordable housing and S106 is if we're going for sustainable environmentally sustainable developments passive house and so on it seems that all that environmental stuff is always competing with affordable housing on S106 monies and how can we get around that so both have a fair whack at the, the, that, that Thank moment. you.
0: All right, up there. If you shout, I think we might be able to do it.
11: Problem. And it's also but it's also a massive opportunity which is being missed. Because if those if that land was used to build social rented homes, that would be more than a of the social housing waiters in the country met. So my question very quickly to James Murray is it's absolutely amazing that the the uh, Housing strategy outlines fifty percent on affordable land and indeed you know in places in, in Islington on the site Holloway prison, that sort of My question is, when does Sadiq come take the choice to fall in these applications? Will the mayor make sure on every single public website we
0: have to get 50% protocol? out of it? Okay. No, I'm really sorry. There's lots of people who didn't get to ask their question. Who, uh, I'm very sorry, but TWT, unlike the rest of the left, is trying to run on time, which means they're going to try to kick us out in about seven minutes, and these guys are going to come back. I'm really sorry, comrade. Okay, so you've got th- uh, two minutes max each. Go.
1: Oh, wow. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting the microphone so quickly. Um, yeah, uh, just more great points. I think... My, my answer to everything really is the social movement. It, it's the social movement and the social movement. And I think that's the, the lesson um, uh, really of history is we can't rely on other people to sort out our basic needs. I think the only people we can trust to do this are ourselves. And I think um, you mentioned Colin Ward in your presentation. Colin Ward's great if you've ever read his work. But, um, he writes a lot about the role people can take in, in housing themselves and how those communities are often more resilient and, and far more viable. And I think try, trying to move um, out of this impasse is, is why I find Haringey Start so inspiring as a project because it's the, it's the first time I think this has been done on this sort of scale in the UK and it's, it, I think it points towards how we can have solutions that are neither in the state or in the market but actually rooted in our communities um, for the long term. Um, I think when it comes to things like homelessness, the, the answer is that we have to give the homeless houses. Um, I, don't, I don't really know. How else we do that? I think again, organisation or um, or unionisation or consistent efforts to bring these people into social movements is the best defence we can have. Because in, in the similar policies of dispossessing the homeless, who have already been dispossessed, are happening all across the country now. Um, and I think it's something we really do have to resist. And, and we can do that ourselves if you see the police hassling someone who's homeless, intervene and stop them and make them leave them alone. You know, like that's something all of us can do. And I think having that sort of culture of how we go in our cities, is, is the thing we need to try and build when we talk about common cities. Um, finally, because I know you want us to wrap up. Um, uh, I think there is an opportunity in the fact that financialization is, is globalization. Cities are where that happens now. The, the, the local is global in, in cities. And that means that we can start thinking about ways of having like, inter-city solidarity, you know? like if, the, if, the, if neoliberalism is about inter-urban competition, how do we do inter-urban solidarity? And, and one thing I always really liked was in the new era of state in East London, they tried to sell it, um, sell it off and massively jack up the rent. The person responsible was a hedge fund, a notorious slum landlord in New York. So not only was there a campaign to save the estate in London, but spontaneously in New York, people organized and shut down the headquarters of this hedge fund. And I think that they won the campaign and they still will have their homes. And I think that's the sort of thing we can start looking towards.
10: Thank you.
4: So in the last two rounds of questions, there were a few questions about land and values and so on. So I'll try and answer all of them in two minutes <laughs> if I can. Um, but just to make a few really, uh, I think, important points around that, and we had a question around uh, like land tax and around the way that land should be treated, uh, which, again, I could spend a lot, a lot of time talking about. There, there are two points I'd like to say in reference to that. Firstly, um, I think we should have more progressive taxation of land. You know, I think the way that it is taxed at the moment doesn't incentivize it to be used in the right way, doesn't incentivize the right things to be built on it, and so on. Um, But fundamentally alongside that is about how land is valued and what the relationship of the state is to land if it's being assembled and ultimately compulsorily purchased um, if necessary. And at the moment, as many people will know, if you're valuing land, if if, like city hall or councils or whatever want to buy land by compulsorily purchasing it, um, it's valued on what they could get in the private market. So the car park is not sold for the value of a car park. It's sold for what you could get for the car park if there was a 20-storey tower of luxury flats on there. <laughs> so it's valued about the, the hope value, about what you could get on it, rather than the existing use value. And that actually links to, I think the gentleman was talking about uh, the viability point And one of the uh, kind of... Uh, tricks or one of the the, the, the loopholes which has been happening in terms of viability in recent years is that developers um, effectively overpay for land so they pay a lot of money for land because of this they can imagine what they can what they can get on it they then come into the local planning authority and say we paid so much for the land we can only afford to do nine percent affordable housing or whatever and the the circle kind of continues because then the next person comes along thinks well they got away with nine percent so i can pay more for the land and they get away with it as well, and we never break that cycle. Uh, What we've done in London, and have a look on our planning policy on the the website, is set out that when we do viability, the value of the land should be based on the existing use value. So if the private developer overpays for the land, that's their bad luck. You know, we expect them to have bought that land based on the existing use value, and bearing in mind our affordable housing, percentages, and that's a different way of looking at it, and it's a way that we actually got, there was a planning case, a planning appeal, Um, actually my old borough of Islington, uh, right next door to um, uh, the Holloway prison site, actually just a bit further up the road, a territorial army site it was, and that's one where the planning inspector actually basically agreed with us um, that we should have uh, existing use value rather than hope value. I'm I'm going to let down the team if I don't wrap up now, Uh, but yeah, if anyone wants to talk to me about land afterwards, come and grab me.
0: Fantastic, thank you.
3: Thanks. Uh, just to go back to the question about citizenship, uh, we haven't had, have focused so much on land and housing today that we haven't really had a chance to talk about cooperatives. There was supposed to be a speaker, wasn't there? Um, but yeah, I, I work for a workers' cooperative a community food growing project, and I think that's a way for people to um, take responsibility for themselves and the way they work and actually then get the benefits of that back as well. Um, on the questions about land and land tax the land justice network is doing a lot of work on just exploring all of the different options for how we could just readjust our relationship to land and the one that I thought was really interesting was the national citizens land trust where you would actually basically put the land underneath all of our homes into one massive great trust and then you need to sell your home, you just sell the bricks and mortar and the land doesn't get sold, and you actually completely wipe out this inflationary housing market. So some really interesting ideas coming forward there.
2: Um, I just give you the example of Uruguay and the city of Montevideo, in which all public land or land belonging either to the city or to national level was made available to cooperative housing to build social housing and social rent. Period. I think this should be done. To to sell uh, public land for the higher bidder is outrageous. Public land is common land, is our land, is not private property of the state is common property of the citizens. So I think we should think on city as our common property. And from that point on, try to refrain all these policies in order to meet our needs. Thank you. Fantastic.
0: I just wanna thank all of the speakers and also all of the really um, amazing contributions from the floor. There's obviously a huge amount of determination and actually quite a lot of anger about what's going on across the UK in relationship not only to our cities, but also our housing. Um, That brings our session to the end. Uh, So one more round of applause for our speakers and thank you very much.